All right, so I've been thinking a lot about uh, bringing the gang back together, so to speak. Billy Hall, Brian McInnes, a couple of our boys, Jordan, and I was thinking, all right, we, we should maybe make this a more periodic or, or a more regular thing, but what could we call it? What, what could we name it? And I came up with LTS, Let's Talk Sports, WTF, which stands for With the Fellas. Um, we have Billy Hall, the Honolulu Star Advertiser. We have Brian McInnes, formerly the advertiser, now with Pacific Business News. And I'm wondering, what do you guys think about that? WTF seems to also represent uh, the reaction to a lot of the things we say. And so I thought it was kind of fitting. But do, can you guys come up with a better nickname or what? What do we have here? That no, sums I, up I, a, lot, a lot that's going on in my life right now. So... <laughs> Perfect. Yeah, WTF uh, sums up my last two years at the Star Advertiser, so <laughs> I, I'm with you, man. <laughs> All right, Jordan, you're the uh, unanimous vote, potentially. Yeah, Jordan, I can't, how's I your can't, life going? I can, well, I mean, it's, it's okay. I can't really complain. <laughs> I, don't have any, I don't have any standing gripes right now, but, but I do think it's appropriate. I, I mean, I'm going to imagine the listener WTF meter goes up when we have these two guys on, so that makes sense. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun uh, having Billy and Brian – uh, being part of the show once again. So we appreciate you guys being here. So we go from WTF, the name of this episode, to uh, WTS. Welcome to the show. Let's Talk Sports. This is episode number 71, and we're bringing the guys together because there were some pretty big stories that occurred both locally and on a national scale that I just felt like needed a little bit of input from you guys, guys who have worked uh, closely with some of the subject matter, obviously looking at things from the uh, media uh, vantage point. And so I think that that perspective is important here. And on that note, LTS WTF gets to game time. And the game time topic to get us started is our main topic, which means we're going to already give it the Domino's Hawaii main topping moniker. And that is Mike Trapasso and the University of Hawaii parting ways after 20 years as head coach of this UH baseball program, ups and downs for sure, uh, multiple Western Athletic Conference titles. Uh, this is a guy who was the National Coach of the Year back in 2006 when they won 45 games, but his overall UH career record pretty close to 500 536 and 531 things got a little bit more difficult and the success was a little bit fewer and farther between after the transition over to the big west conference still after 20 years and with everything that the university of hawaii athletic department is dealing with now and trying to transition the practice field to a facility that can house college football games on campus and everything else that this program is looking at here in the aftermath of the COVID pandemic. How surprised is everybody that this move was made now? And what do you think about it? And I think it's fitting. The first guy to comment has got to be the guy who covered very close the University of Hawaii baseball for many years, one Billy Hull. Billy, how did this hit you? Yeah, I think I covered baseball for 10 years, and somehow that was only half of Trapp's uh, 20-year run, which, uh, hey, look, man, you go 20 years in that line of business in a Division I school, uh, coaching head coach of baseball, you know, that's a pretty impressive streak. But uh, I got to admit, I was, you know, when I heard the news, I was stunned, and it didn't have anything to do with what I thought about where the program was going with anything like that, just the fact that it's happened. I mean, I remember when, you know, I started covering it maybe five years, Trap. Trap was into his uh, tenure, and you couldn't really, at that point, still imagine UH baseball without Les Murakami. Well, it's actually kind of hard now to imagine UH baseball without Mike Trapasso, if you really think about it. I mean, you know, he's been there for so long, and look, I think, you know, there were a lot of things um, going on, but ultimately, I thought the thing that I really noticed about these teams, and it was something that went all the way back to even when I was covering it, you know, I was obviously there and saw, you know, the good years, 2009, 2010, 2011 with Colton Wong you know, when they basically saved his job and went in the WAC tournament as the fifth seed going to an NCAA regional. But just kind of ever since then, I just, you know, there's just been kind of a um, excitement that I never really felt with the team. And, and the thing that really bothered me the most was, you know, you look back at some of these teams and the way they played at the end of the season. You know, I, I actually, uh, I did some research for this podcast. I put on the old reporter's hats because it's look been so you. long. Um, and I just looked at their last, their last five years in the month of May, the last month of the season, they were 19 and 42. They really struggled. Obviously, this year they lost 11 of their last 12, which was surprising. Um, last year they were they lost eight of their last nine – or two years ago, excuse me. Obviously, last year was the, the pandemic year. They lost eight of their last nine games. And it just kind of told me that it was a team that, you know, by the end of the season they just 
you know, the excitement, the fun, the, the, the passion for it, it always had kind of been sucked out of him. And I just kind of felt that, you know, going along with coach Trapp and him being here 20 years and, and, you know, he's kind of an up and down guy and stuff, you know, sometimes he's really into it. And sometimes, you know, he's kind of hard to, to, to talk to and stuff. And, you know, I just thought that their, their emotion, the level, their passion, it just kind of always seemed to wane as the years went on. And so, you know, 20 years, it's been, you know, more than 10 years since they've been in a regional. I, um, you know, I can't argue with them making a move. I think, um, you know, I think it's maybe time to kind of put in some new blood and just kind of inject some new life, some youthful life into this program. So when you say youthful, do you mean maybe somebody who is a little bit on the, the younger side, maybe more of an up-and-comer? I mean, this is a program that hasn't had a lot of history with head coaches, as you alluded to. It's primarily been Les Murakami and Mike Trapasso with a little bit of Carl Furatani uh, sprinkled in there on an interim basis. But uh, other than that, I mean, it has not been a revolving door of coaches. And so when you look at candidacy for this position i imagine there will be no shortage of enthusiastic applicants uh, what direction do you see this program turning to i mean i, I i'm not going to really put it like an age necessarily saying that it needs to get younger and i think this is a good thing to kind of mention that i know there's a lot of talk out there about you got to go local right we got to hire the local guy but the reality of the situation is there's going to be a lot of qualified candidates they're going to apply for this job i think this is a you know, this is kind of a sexy job, I think, for a lot of people on the mainland. You get to coach at the University of Hawaii. You get to coach in that stadium. You get to coach in the Big West. I think there's going to be a ton of candidates. And so I think it'd be, it'd be a mistake to kind of go in it right away and say, oh, I want to get, you know, a young coach to, to kind of just a youthful presence or I need to necessarily get a local guy. I mean, obviously, understanding Hawaii would be great. And that's going to be, you know, kind of a big thing. But there's also going to be a lot of qualified cancer in the mainland, but I think you're going to get some pretty big names and some pretty exciting options. So I think you take a look at the whole, you know, you take a look at everyone that's coming in. You don't kind of start out with a narrow box. You kind of keep it open and you just kind of let the process uh, kind of happen. So, you know, I, I do know one thing, there's going to be a lot of candidates, like you said. Yeah. It's really interesting to me, Billy, right? Because it, it was like, okay, what was going to be the, what was going to be the final straw? Like what eventually was going to lead to the athletic department moving on from Mike Trapasso. And I don't know if it was the finish of this season. It was just, hey, look, the contract was up and they finally weren't going to just roll it over into a new contract or something like that. Because it is interesting, right? You, you hear from a lot of alumni around the program, a lot of alumni who grew up in or Hawaii guys, I guess you could say, um, who have some opinions on this, right? As to where they would like to see the direction of the program go, whether it be somebody from within the University of Hawaii baseball family, an alum or something like that, or whether it be a guy, a local guy with local ties, something like that, that maybe didn't play at the University of Hawaii, but is from Hawaii and, and made his mark someplace else. So it's really interesting when you look at that. I think it is imperative that the guy who comes in at least understands, right? Because Hawaii has no shortage of talent. And I think as long as the guy coming in, whether it's from Hawaii or no ties to Hawaii, at least they have an understanding, right, of the talent that is in this state uh, and they do their best to to kind of tap into that. And I think Hawaii teams of the past, all the good Hawaii teams that you think of, right? I have a nice mixture of really good local players and really good players from the mainland. And, and that has led to some of the most successful teams, including I think Trap's best teams when they had Colton Wong there, right? Uh, turn of the last decade. And so I guess my question for you, Billy, is you've covered that team when they have been pretty successful. You cover them when they haven't been. But what do you think is kind of the formula that they need to go after to, to get this thing back to some of the success they've seen in, in past decades? Well, I think there's no question that you want to kind of lay the foundation of this program with locally uh, grown product. I mean, I think there's no question that there's a ton of top baseball kids that come out of Hawaii every year that can play at the division one level. And even some guys maybe under the radar a little bit that aren't necessarily the big time prospects. You know, you see a lot of them end up going to UH and having nice careers for themselves. So, you know, I think it's obviously, I think you start, with that foundation of local talent, you try to bring in as many of the top guys as you can locally. And then you pluck kind of maybe some of your, you know, maybe number one guys. I mean, you look over the last kind of 15 years and, you know, they've been able to pluck number one pitchers in the big West out of California, you know, or out of Washington, you know, the Matt Cooper's, the Tyler Bashirs, the Aaron Davenport's, you know, you can get those kind of guys from the mainland. So I think it's kind of a steady mix of, Hey, don't be afraid to open up the program to a lot of local talent, but you've also got to be able to recruit the mainland hard and, you know, one thing I want to point out real quick, too, is that if you look at these teams that were really successful, you had Mike Trapasso come in, but you had two really talented local coaches who were really good at what they did when they were successful. 
and Keith Komeji, who is the hitting coach, and Chad Konishi is the pitching coach. So, um, you know, my point earlier about not necessarily having to have a local, um, you know, a Hawaii tie maybe necessarily to be the head coaching job, I think you'd still want to fill out your town if you were in that position with a, Hawaii, a heavy Hawaii presence. So I think to kind of clarify, I think the coaching staff should obviously have kind of a heavy Hawaii presence, but I don't think it necessarily means uh, it needs to be the head coach. But, you know, I think blurring those kind of guys together, bringing some excitement back to the game, bringing some excitement back to that stadium, you know you're going to do that when you're playing the local guys. Um, that's kind of would be the recipe I'd look at moving forward. You know, Larry Beal said something really interesting on Twitter. He suggested, hey, maybe they should look for a coach that has a connection to Asia, right? And you have such – a strong enthusiasm for the game of baseball over there in that part of the world, that region of the world. And that would be kind of a flipping of the script in in some sense, right? Because Hawaii is often looked at as being an institution and an athletic program that is challenged by its geography. And yet, if you look at it through that prism, not only in just bringing in talent from over there, but also in trying to build up the market and build out your fan base uh, and extend it over to Asia, it almost creates an advantage potentially for that geography. It's not the only sport that's been talked about in that way, uh, but uh, Brian, I would love for you to, to chime in. Generally speaking, uh, do you see that as being something that could work uh, in the favor of, of Hawaii moving forward if they were to find somebody that did have a little bit more of a connection that way? Hey, Hawaii has been talked about to, as this east-west gateway for, for so long, right? And, and not just athletics. I mean, we're talking uh, academics in the tech world, going, going to my day job for PVN, talking about diversifying Hawaii's economy, like people looking to the east for, for solutions right now. But I, I would add to the points you guys were making. I mean, I think we just go back to early 2020, the last prominent hire made by the University of Hawaii for the football program. Everyone was expecting local, younger, basically some, summed up by Craig Stutzman, the, the attributes he brought to bear. And UH went in, in a total different direction, hiring Todd Graham, you know, a mainland guy, an older guy. And, you know, he, they were relatively successful in year one. And obviously, same athletic director in David Matlin. So, yeah, I think there, there's a whole range of possibilities on the table there for what direction they could go. And I would just add, I was as stunned as the rest of you guys that they made this move this year given all that's happening right now we're still in this pandemic lot to worry about and uh has this field that is constructing on campus right now sinking a lot of money into it as we know uh doesn't have the wherewithal financially compared to some of its peers uh maybe in the big west they do but but certainly nationally to deal with all these these balls in the air at the same time so uh, i was definitely surprised about that for sure all right, I want to hear your guys' thoughts on the legacy of Mike Trapasso. How is that going to be written here over time? And we're in the immediate aftermath of this decision and announcement. But as we digest this more, as we move forward in time, what will be ultimately the legacy of Mike Trapasso? Billy, why don't you go first? Well, I think it kind of begins with kind of the stuff off the field, you know, the, the getting his kids graduating and bringing so many kids in here. Um, you know, them growing up in this program, getting their degree in school and being able to move on in the future. I think you kind of start that with there. Um, you know, he had a couple of really good coaching jobs early on. Obviously, they um, went to a, two NCAA regionals. Um, you know, he also oversaw them getting into the Big West and competing. You know, and it's not like they were pushovers or anything in the Big West, right? I mean, they kind of held their own. Um, I just think ultimately, you know, he's a guy that came here and, you know, I don't think anybody in the world thought he was going to be here 20 years. And like I said before, 20 years is 20 years. If you're a division one college baseball coach and you get to coach 20 years, especially if you get to do it in a place like Hawaii in that stadium, you know, that you, you know, say what you want about him, but you know, that's a hell of a run and you got to give him credit for being able to, to coach that long uh, in division one baseball. Yeah. 20 years. That's a ride. I mean, that's in Riley Wallace type territory right there. Jordan, what do you think? Yeah, I think it's a mixed bag, right? And, you could argue the first half of that tenure was a lot more successful than the second half. Is it circumstance? Is it just losing his touch or whatnot? It's always so hard, right? Because it's always going to be juxtaposed with Les Murakami. And it's not like Les Murakami was in the World Series every year, right? But there is the College World Series, the pinnacle that the University of Hawaii baseball program had gotten to under Les Murakami. And he, he had, what, three plus decades where he was able to accomplish all of that. And then a very successful tenure, for sure, in, in when the whack was, was a little different than it was 
when Mike Trapasso was there, at least for the duration, right? I mean, he was still coaching, and Trapasso was coaching in a conference that, that won a College World Series with Fresno State, right? What was it 2008, I think? You know, so it's not like it was the slouch of a conference that some people make it out to be, but it wasn't necessarily the Big West, what they jumped into. So I think ultimately it's, it's just this giant mixed bag that kind of is a little bittersweet taste in your mouth, right? He graduated guys at a high clip. I would say a lot of the guys who played for him, I think, have good things to say about Trap, right? And I think that counts for something. Um, obviously, none of us did, but we, we know guys who, who played there. And, and look, not everybody loves Trap, right? That's, I, I think any coach at any level is not going to be a, a universal unanimous guy. But I, I think there are a fair amount of players who played for him who have good things to say about him. But it just it was a mixed bag, and it kind of just progressively got more frustrating, I think, for fans is – as he couldn't quite keep up the pace we saw in that first decade. And so it just, it's this ultimate mixed bag. And I think that, what was it, five, seven games over 500, over 1,000 games kind of sums it up, I think, um, his tenure. I, I think his record kind of really reflects, I, I think, the overall, overall viewpoint uh, of his 20 years. Yeah, you had it right the first time. Five games over 500, as a matter of fact. And uh, at least some of those 531 losses are attributed to BMAC, right? BMAC, you caused a few of those. You're known as the Red Jinx. Uh, there were several where you just wandered over to the Les Murakami press box while uh, Hawaii was leading in a game. You showed up. Next thing you know, the tables turn. They end up losing those games. So uh, what are your thoughts here on the legacy of Mike Trapazzo? Well, I didn't also cause losses. I caused games to be extended just by my mere <laughs> presence. There, I remember Billy yelling at me one time from the press box, just go, get out. Because as soon as I showed up, uh, the visiting team tied it up and it went to the 10th inning at that point. So, hey, you know, I, I've, I've been an impartial observer from, from afar for a couple of beats removed for the whole time Billy was on the beat. And I would just say my enduring mental image of Mike Trapasso is as the survivor as the guy who year after year would find a way just to, to survive one more time. Uh, you know, us media types have the running joke about it being a trap year when it looked like they were doomed and that he was surely done. And then something miraculous would happen and he would survive, get a contract extension, a rollover, what have you. So trap the survivor is what I will remember. By the way, the Red Jinx is, this is a legit thing. I mean, this isn't just something we made up here on the podcast we're teasing Brian about on the spot. Like, this is an actual reputation, really a, a possible secret identity for Brian McInnes. Guys, you know me. I'm a humble guy. I, <laughs> I, I will let my record speak for itself. Uh, by the way, I just want to paint a little bit of a picture here. We're on Zoom, right? This is an audio podcast. Uh, but Billy Hull, our buddy, is actually oh, up goodness. in the state of Washington. And you are uh, at your parents' house. And uh, please tell them that we say hello because they're awesome. Uh, but you are in their basement, uh, you tell us. And just the screen, the background here on the Zoom call, there's a lot of, like, uh, wall decorations. And a lot of it looks like sea creatures, a lot of fish. Honu, uh, some of those types of, of animals. Uh, but it also looks like you're lying down on a, on a mattress or something. I am. I am. I've got the laptop on a bed. I'm lying down <laughs> stomach first on a bed. There's about, my parents really like art. So there's about 100 pieces of art on the wall. It's all animals, by the way. The only art they like is animals. So, um, hey, man, 2021, you know, coming out of pandemic, you know, a little slow getting back to, to real life. But, um, yeah, that, that's where I'm at right now. Also working from the mainland, by the way, too. No vacation time. It's no vacation. I just finished my shift about an hour ago. So, yeah, man, that, that, that's where I'm at. You, you actually get to experience being that guy in your parents' basement. You know, that guy who has impacted the world uh, in a profound manner here over the last five or ten years. Hey, Ma! The meatloaf! <laughs> All right, next segment. Well, we have more coaching news uh, in fact, we've got a couple of coaching topics to get to. The first, we stay in Manoa, and there's going to be a little bit of turnover in the University of Hawaii men's basketball program as top assistant Chris Gerlofson is leaving Hawaii to take basically a similar position, associate head coach at the University of San Francisco. BMAC, you are our basketball connection, a guy who covered the UH men's team uh, very closely for many years yourself. Chris Gerlofson is a guy who is very well-liked, 
very popular, only was with the Hawaii program for two years, but he made quite the impact, particularly when Aram Ganat had to take a leave of absence, and Chris Gerlofson took on the head coaching responsibilities and performed admirably. And so I want to get your thoughts as to what kind of loss you perceive his departure as being. Now, it should be stated that John Montgomery, member of the staff, since the beginning of the Ron Gannat era, he is going to be elevated to the associate head coach position here moving forward. And so they're, they're going to have to find out exactly how to fill that one spot on that coaching staff. But all that said, your thoughts on the loss of Chris Gerlofson and, and what that impact may be. Hey, look. Staffs changing over is, is a little bit akin to the rosters of college basketball teams changing over in, in this day and age of, of hoops. You got, even before the, the transfer portal exploded into what it is today, you got guys looking to better themselves, advance their careers, going from place to place. But I will say Aranganat has done a fairly good job of, of keeping member of, members of his staff in place. You did have the, the notable departure of Adam Jacobson, Adam Jacobson a couple of years ago going to Cal Baptist. And now Chris Gerlifson, who could be argued was the top assistant, I don't, he did not have the associate head coach title. But as you said, Kanoa, he was the interim or acting head coach there for 13 games, uh, not this past season, but the one before in 2019-20, and did a really good job, uh, garnered a lot of goodwill, I think, in the program and surrounding the program. Really likable guy, as you said. It's an impactful loss. It's a significant loss. A guy who will be missed – I don't know of a guy who's come in in an assistant coach's role and made as much of a, an indelible impression in just two years uh, as Chris Gerlofson. I mean, this guy came in from University of San Diego, brought a couple of recruits with him in guys like James Jean Marie and Noel Coleman, who sure weren't all conference players by any stretch, but you could see the potential for a charismatic guy like Gerlofson to, to be a good and improving recruiter and he, he was just a guy who could do almost anything in your program. I mean, a bit of a jack-of-all-trades showed that he could step in on a moment's notice to be the acting head coach when Aranganat had to take that leave of absence. Uh, you know, he had just arrived. Like, he was only on the scene for a month or two, and he gets thrust into this leading man role, and he did a bang-up job. I mean, he got Hawaii to the, the uh, semifinals of the Diamond Head Classic where they lost to UW, Billy, uh, but they beat UTEP in that first round. And um, shoot, I think he impressed a lot of people. And it's just unfortunate to see him go to USF where he will be the top assistant to Todd Golden. So best of luck to Chris Gerlison. But shoot, man, um, UH has got a, a big hole to fill there with his departure. It's kind of a lateral move. It is a step up in conference, obviously, right, when you get into the West Coast Conference over the Big West. And, and USF is seemingly a program on the rise. They've been playing well there in conference the last couple of years. They played just a couple of seasons ago, right? When when the Dons came down to the Stan Sheriff Center a couple of, what, Decembers ago or what was it? Um, but I guess, BMAC, what, what is the next guy going to need to do for Aran Ganat, right? Because different head coaches bring different sh- strengths, right? Whether it's you're an X and O guy, you're a recruiter, you leave kind of your weaknesses up to your assistants and whatnot. And and, and maybe it's been more recruiting that, that Aran has needed you know, his right-hand guy to kind of bring to the table. Is that sort of the case? Or, or what do you think is the the need of the, the next associate, if you will? It might be a weird thing to say, but I, I think it would be beneficial if that guy was as personable as a guy like Chris Gerlison is, not only to be a secondary face for the program behind Aran Gannat, uh, you know, a go-to quote, uh, somebody who, who could be a hand on the sh- shoulder of a lot of these guys in moments of doubt. Those were things that Chris Gerlofson did to, at a at a high level. I mean, he he did these things, and and as I said, made made a pretty huge impression, uh, consistently over over those two years. You know, I, I'm sure it was weird for him to, as I said, get thrust into that lead role, have to take a step back. But whoever's next, you know, we know John Montgomery, who's been with Aranganat from almost day one with this program. He, he was the the last assistant added that first year for Iran when they made the NCAA tournament. So John's a guy, he's experienced, he's been here, he knows the drill, he knows their system. They'll, they'll, but they will need maybe, I would like to see a guy like, you know, Jesse Nakanishi get elevated from director of operations into one of those full assistant jobs. He's been around the block. He knows the division one scene. He's local. You know, he, he would be, I think, a terrific addition to that staff. And um, as for that third spot, man, you know, it's, 
it's an open market right now. Uh, I think a lot of guys are, are maybe kind of settled. You know, it, the, the beginning of the offseason has passed, but Chris Gerlofson came in relatively late in that offseason after, after Adam Jacobson left. So it is possible to get a guy who's competent, who's got some experience, not, you know, totally fresh-faced, green, uh, to be a part of that program because, um, you know, UH has got to get better in the Big West from, from about 500. It's 2016 is a while ago now, right? That NCAA tournament trip. And it's sort of been middle of the pack in the Big West. It's sort of been 500 every year in conference. And, and we never thought Trapasso was going to leave, but they've now shown the willingness to move on from coaches um, under this athletic administration, if you will, under David Matlin. And so is, is the clock ticking for the basketball program? Is it a sign of, hey, look, this, everybody might not be as secure as we once thought? I don't think Iran's going anywhere for the time being. You know, I, I think he's he's going to be just just okay uh, as they are right now. Um, you know, I, I know the fans are getting antsy. Uh, that there's some, you know, like worrying why they can't break through in the in the conference tournament, why they can't be better than 500 in the conference regular season. But uh, I don't think he's done anything uh, to warrant, you know, not being the head coach yet. At least in the eyes of David Matlin, I think uh, something drastic would have to happen either way where, you know, they, they bottom out or, you know, they catch fire and, and uh, become perennial conference contenders and maybe Iran gets another opportunity. So one of those things would have to happen, I think, for, for him to not be the head coach of the University of Hawaii. Well, I would just add if I was Iran Ganat and I saw the Mike Trapasso thing happen, you know, I'd kind of – that'd make me pause a little bit. But uh, the Chris Gerlison thing, and I'm just – look, man, I'm – Clearly, I'm just a guy living in his parents' bedroom, a uh, basement in a whole bedroom, yeah, basement uh, in Washington right now. But, um, you know, does Chris Gerlison's departure say anything about that? I mean, you know, I know he was a guy that there's a lot of people that were maybe hoping that he could maybe be coach here one day. Does, does him leaving suggest at all that, you know, maybe he didn't see a way forward here and he thought maybe that there wasn't a likely opportunity for him to maybe be that coach soon? And is that something that, that kind of supports the idea that Iran might be around for a while longer? Yeah, I think there might be something to that for sure. And um, as I said, something drastic would have to happen, I, I think, for, for him not to be the coach here. And uh, hey, Chris, he created a lot of goodwill uh, in his time here in that two years. And uh, I think he, he would be a natural candidate for if and when that position ever became available. Uh, you know, he could be a finalist type candidate, in my opinion, for, for that job. He's proved he can relate to people here. His significant other is from Hawaii. He, He's got ties through through her and, and the people he met during his time here. So, you know, Ron Gannat had that first go, go around at the University of Hawaii uh, under Bob Nash, right? And, and first Riley Wallace, of course, uh, working his way up the staff. He goes back to St. Mary's and then lo and behold, when there's an opportunity here, he gets his chance. So perhaps Chris Gerlison, uh, a guy who's in his early 40s, you know, uh, so a little bit further along on the age track than Iran, but maybe one day he gets that same opportunity. But shoot, um, yeah, I, I just think, you know, maybe in the long run, as far as here goes, him getting that taste of head coaching experience uh, maybe caused a little bit of friction in the long term between him and Iran for creative control, some some differences in opinion, perhaps. I don't know specifics, but I think uh, that that's not too hard to surmise. All right, but it is a sports podcast, and so we are contractually obligated to mention Mike Krzyzewski, especially in a situation like this where Coach K says, K-Den, that's right, the Duke coaching basketball legend is calling it quits after a storied career which saw him lead the Blue Devils to 12 Final Fours, five national championships. He's 74 years old. He has made it clear in his press conference that this is a family-oriented decision, that it's not a health decision. It is not a decision akin to Roy Williams at North Carolina where he basically said that uh, the game has passed him by. He says that's not the case. His intent is in this upcoming final year to restore Duke to to its glory and then set sail off into the sunset. So uh, BMAC, I'll give you first crack here at uh, giving your assessment of Coach K and the timing of this announcement. Hey, well, I associate my personal memories of Coach K with you two being over there at, on Maui for the Invitational. And, um, you know, Coach K came down twice during the, the times I got to cover the tournament there. And Hey man, that, that was the golden rule on Maui that, Duke rules on Maui. Every time they come, they, they sweep the field until they met up with Rui Hachimura and Gonzaga during their last visit. And that was, you know, an epic battle between 
Zion and mm -hmm. RJ Barrett and Cam Reddish and those guys. And um, man, those were some indelible memories I'll never forget. But, you know, Coach K, man, he, he was all class while he was there. You know, I know he's had occasional run-ins with the media, but but he was um, he was fantastic. I, I got to ask him a question once in one of those post-game press conferences, something I'll, I'll always probably remember and cherish, you know, now that my, my beat writing days for college basketball are done, I'm already <laughs> looking back and kind of uh, fondly remembering that. But man, what a legend, just, just 74 years old, you know, five national championships, um, was it 12 final fours, maybe 20, gosh, somewhere in that neighborhood. <laughs> it seemed like every year sometimes, but coach K man on the heels of Roy Williams, uh, changing the guard, man, it, it's unreal. And uh, he might, he might say that the game hasn't passed him by, but with all the changes we've seen in the game in the last just a handful of years, as far as eligibility and, and transfers and all that stuff, how could it not? I mean, it's, it's such just, just a, it's a different game in a lot of ways as far as team building and, and that kind of thing goes, even as we saw him try to embrace the one and done guys in recent years, um, legend of the game. What more can you say? I got this book, um, the legends club that was written by John Feinstein. I've been saving for a moment like this about coach K Dean Smith and Jim Valvano that I'm looking forward thoroughly to reading. Yeah, that sounds pretty cool. I, I had a chance to talk very briefly, uh, but talk with Coach K. That year that you're referring to in the Maui Invitational, I was working sideline for the ESPN coverage and got to attend practice and he shook my hand and it was kind of like, you know, being touched by the Pope or something like that. It was like, well, this guy is, is basketball royalty and is going to be on that Mount Rushmore of basketball coaches. Uh, he controlled everything about that program, was able to delegate all kinds of responsibility to those around him. John Shire, interestingly enough, the guy who's, who's scheduled to be taking over for him, top assistant, he was the guy that I would talk to uh, to get reaction going in and out of halftime because Coach K doesn't do that kind of thing. He doesn't talk to the sideline analysts, at least in most instances. Uh, and so it was kind of interesting, the dynamic there. And hey, look, Coach K is reputed to be about as filthy in terms of the language that he uses in denigrating his players or imploring them to play better. Uh, it is almost Bob Knight-like, at least by all accounts, but you would never know it because they are so systemic in the way that they protect him, right? In those huddles, they would just wall it off so that no fans, no media could see in and really kind of see how volatile the guy could be, but he could motivate his players. He could certainly recruit his players. And it gets me thinking, Who's likely to benefit the most from Coach K moving on? Is it John Calipari at Kentucky? Would he be the guy? You see so many recruits every year sort of deciding between Kentucky or Duke among their finalists. I'm just wondering, you know, who's maybe uh, most excited and rubbing their hands together at the idea of Coach K getting out of the way. Do you have any thoughts on that, Billy? Yeah, I think Mike Hopkins at Washington's got to be thrilled that he might <laughs> finally be able to win a recruiting battle against Duke. No, um... Look, I think one of the interesting things, and, you know, I kind of had a, a bit of a, a different – well, you know, something I thought about is, you know, we're coming off this pandemic, and you see guys like Roy Williams, you know, say they're done, and Mike Krzyzewski. And, look, it's not like they were like a lot of people where their lives completely stopped and they didn't do anything. But you got to wonder about some of these people that have been in these jobs that are so grinding and have been so grueling year after year after year, where I bet for a lot of them, this pandemic, everything slowed down for the first time. And I'm sure, you know, you know, guys like Coach K and guys like Roy Williams probably had a little bit more free time to actually maybe enjoy family. And I just kind of wonder if this is going to be something maybe you see, like I think of Greg Popovich, right, of the Spurs, or I think of Pete Carroll of the Seahawks, and just some of these coaches that are – and it doesn't even have to be coaches. It can be different things. That I think there's, there might be some people out there that went through this pandemic and said, you know what, man, I really grinded it out. You know, I, I kind of like this fact that I can slow down and maybe do some other things with my life. So um, – that's kind of one of the reasons why it didn't surprise me Coach K made this decision. It wouldn't surprise me if some of these other long-term guys um, do that. I just think um, we're embarking on a brand new world, and I think this pandemic really a lot of lessons were learned from a lot of different people. And it wouldn't surprise me if you saw some more people that have the careers like, like these guys, the long careers like they have, just kind of say, you know, got a taste of, of what it was like, just kind of relax a little bit and kind of uh, pounce on that moving forward. I think that's a great point, right? Because it's like, okay, what about the timing, right? Like why now? why at this point in the calendar, right, but with summer kind of bearing down and then they get into summer camp and, and, and on into the season really sooner rather than later. And 
the coaching waiting thing, right, has been in vogue. And, and John Shire, like, why is he the guy, right? He's got this huge coaching tree, right, of guys who have been pretty proven outside of the program now running their own programs. And, I mean, it makes sense, right? John Shire was a guy that, that I think checks all the boxes of a Duke basketball player, right? He was on that 2010 championship team um, for Duke. And, and so it, it, I think what Billy points out is really something to consider when it's like, okay, why now, right? I think he wants one more go at it, right, in a non-COVID year where they can actually fill Cameron Indoor and they can make one more run at it because it is amazing just his longevity, right, that's sort of been the theme so far of this podcast, like the longevity of some of these coaches. Like he won national titles in 91-92 and then like nearly 10 years before his next one and then nearly 10 years before his fourth one and then finally in 2015 he wins his other, right? It's been a little while now since 2015 and, and somehow Duke morphed from this uppity private school that, you know, was Christian Leitner and Bobby Hurley and all the guys you wanted to punch in the face. And then it became the brotherhood. And it's like the coolest thing, right, in college basketball. And how he made that transition is is kind of impressive. And I've always been a Duke fan, uh, going back to the My Invitation. I've told this story many a times when I was a little kid. And, and so I grew up rooting for the program. I've always been a Coach K fan, even though I, I'll readily admit, right, he carries himself with a, a bit of sanctimony. Like he... There is a bit of smug attitude to that, right? And a guy who I think can be a little pretentious at times, but the greatness is undeniable. It's absolutely undeniable in how he has morphed his recruiting style, how he has morphed the program, their playing style. Like he's won national championships playing wildly different styles of basketball over the course of his tenure there. And some of his teams have won just shooting threes. Some of his teams have won playing zone, like things you would never guess watching Duke basketball back in the 90s and so his his adaptability is as impressive as all of his success um and yeah duke basketball it's gonna be a different look come 2022 all right we might as well stay on the hoops topic and we just saw this game go down the lakers went down to the phoenix suns losing that series in six games and so lebron james looked very normal pedestrian you would even say didn't shoot the ball very well Devin Booker on the other side for Phoenix 47 as Phoenix was just shooting the bleep out of the ball Uh, but I'm wondering if you guys are thinking what a lot of people might be thinking are we seeing the end of LeBron here right longevity being the theme of this podcast he is a guy who has exhibited longevity about as well as anybody in the history of basketball Uh, he has played a little over 3.2 two full seasons worth of basketball in just playoff games. That's how much mileage he has on that body. And so after a while, you just have to wonder, right, is this the time where father time is catching up to LeBron? What do you guys think? Are we seeing the end of LeBron as we know it, Jordan? And that doesn't even include like the Olympics, right? That doesn't include the, the national team games and camps that he went and participated in. Uh, under Coach K, funny enough, uh, some of those, you know, gold medal teams to add on to the playoff games, to add on to the NBA regular season games and all these minutes that he has piled up. I don't think we've seen the end of it. We saw a lot of the teams, right, who made it deep into the bubble last year kind of flame out this season, including they and Miami, who are both out in the first round, battled injuries. I, I think, you know, what Billy was talking about, a lot of these guys have been grinding for nearly 12 months now, nonstop. They basically didn't have an off season after the end of the bubble uh, in October. And so it's not an excuse, right? But I I do think it is reason to believe that, hey, LeBron extended off season, kind of like he had in what, 2019 after the groin injury, all of a sudden they get AD. We saw a different LeBron, right? We were wondering if that was the end of LeBron after that first season in LA and so I, I still think you see the glimpses right I mean he was he was in the MVP conversation before he hurt the ankle this year right that was only what three months ago like he I, I still think he's got a ton left in the tank and and I think you saw it in this series where for better or worse I think he kind of saw the writing on the wall and didn't didn't quite crank it up to 11 on the effort meter and, and just how he can take over games but when they started making that comeback today, him barreling downhill in the open court, him going down in the post, like he's going to keep reinventing himself. He's still got a lot left in the tank, in my opinion. Yeah, you know, because it's not – father time doesn't just represent itself in the form of he's, he's seeing a, a diminished skill set 
it also represents itself, I think, in the form of it takes longer to recover from injuries, like a high ankle sprain. And I think that was always the most remarkable thing about LeBron was just the ability to recover. Do you agree, BMAC? For sure. And I think Jordan made a great point. Like they had basically no off season. They were, they were coming off bubble times when there were a bunch of other compressed playoff games. You head into like one, two week off season for the teams that were in the finals, them and the Miami heat. And we saw the Miami heat go down with some of the same injury bugs and, and difficulties recovering and finding themselves. I think, Hey, or LeBron's immortal, man. He's, he could keep doing this till he's 45 at something approximating this level, in my opinion. This, I think he's done such a masterful job of, of picking his spots and delegating in the last few years that we almost haven't noticed that he is probably incapable of carrying that load from night to night. You know, last year he, he leaned on Anthony Davis masterfully, in my opinion. And I think Davis being out for some of the key moments of this series just revealed how much that was missed when LeBron, you know, was asked to be that guy going downhill. And by the way, I still got terrified that he was going to spark you know, a 10-0, 12-0 run, and the Lakers were going to pull even in this game. Uh, you know, I was rooting hard for him every step of the way, and that was delicious, by the way. But ultimate tribute to, I mean, who the who this guy is, that this is the first time he's ever lost in the first round, and it took this confluence of factors, the, the, the no-off season, coming back from that high-angle sprain, uh, his running mate going out at the most inopportune time to do them in, and they were still pretty competitive. So I, I think this guy has a lot of more quality ball left in his life. You know, BMAC is my Spurs fan brethren, right? And I'll never understand his take on some of this because he roots actively against LeBron. And I'll admit I'm a LeBron fan singularly, but a Spurs fan as far as my team allegiance is concerned. But BMAC would more root against LeBron than he would root against Kawhi Leonard, who is the guy who jilted the Spurs and kind of ruined the franchise in its current state. So I don't know why you're rooting for Kawhi and rooting against LeBron. What the hell, BMAC? What are you thinking? Indifferent on Kawhi, Laker hater for life. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Billy? Well, I mean, look, I think it's clear that LeBron might be past his prime, but you asked, is LeBron going away? I mean, he's clearly not going away, especially when uh, the Nets win the title this year and he takes his talents to Brooklyn next year. So, I mean, LeBron's never going to actually <laughs> go away. Um, but one of the things I, I, I'm, that I've enjoyed about this playoffs is I think we're kind of – in that period of, you know, every, you know, I don't know, decade or so, there's kind of like a changing of the guard. And when you look at the playoffs this year, you've got Devin Booker tonight, just incredible, scoring 47 and kind of having his big playoff, his first right real big playoff moment for the Suns to get him past the Lakers and extinguish LeBron. I know it was the Knicks, and I, I can't wait to talk about the Knicks here in a little bit, but watching Trey Young just go into Madison Square Garden and take them out the way he did. I mean, there's another young superstar. You look at Luka. Luca's on the verge of taking out Kawhi and uh, uh, Paul George and the Clippers. The young boys are finally getting their kind of shine in the playoffs, and I think we're kind of starting to see a little bit of this transition to the next, the future of the NBA, and I think it's been pretty cool to see because these guys are incredible, man. I mean, 47 from Booker, and we all just kind of were like, yeah, really good game, but, like, you know, we're not blown away by it. You see what Luca's doing. You see what Trey Young's doing. You know, this, this, this upcoming group of, of, of stars is starting to take over, and I think it's going to be really fun to watch. All right. Uh, I wanted to get to this here before we get to our best and worst, uh, because this is a, a story that really kind of has a lot of moving parts to it. Uh, but being that you guys are part of print media, uh, certainly we cater to the idea of getting reaction and responses after uh, competitive endeavors and after some of these uh, athletic contests. Naomi Osaka, uh, who is maybe the star in women's tennis right now, uh, basically came out and, and said that she did not want to participate in any post-match interviews or press conferences going into the French Open. And you had really this contingent of uh, Grand Slam officials who initially responded by saying, no, you got to do it uh, or else you would potentially face disqualification. Uh, she cited certain concerns for her own mental health and anxiety and even admitted on social media that she had gone through bouts of depression here over the last multiple years. Uh, and so I I'm kind of wondering where you guys stand on this. There's a lot here because you're talking about Naomi, Naomi Osaka. You're talking about a female athlete, a female athlete of color 
you're talking about a female athlete who is also from a, a culture in Asia uh, where perhaps, you know, the self-aggrandizement of being in front of the media day in and day out isn't really part of the culture, isn't something that is promoted. Uh, and then you're talking about mental health and the reaction to that uh, and the understanding of that. Uh, so, Brian, we were talking a little bit uh, the other day about this. I kind of wanted to just get where you stand on Naomi Osaka and, and her desire to not participate and whether or not you feel like the, the powers that be in tennis should figure out a way to make things better or easier for her. Well, they certainly came down a little heavy-handed, I think, with the, the threats of what ban, bans for all Grand Slams going forward until – the stance was reversed, or at least, you know, that was my own partial takeaway from it. Uh, it's a delicate, complicated, nuanced issue, man. There, there's a lot of a lot of facets at play here, and, and uh, you, you touched on some of them uh, right in that question. But, um, you know, my, my feeling right now is I feel for some of my print brethren because it, it kind of underscores may, maybe the uh, reduced, you know, importance in their role as far as the traditional press conference goes when, when you talk – when you think about the fact that there are so many more avenues for uh, these prominent athletes to express themselves, uh, whether it be in their, their commercial, their, their uh, social stances, their, their social media, uh, they, they are not dependent on the media, the traditional print, print or broadcast media to get their message out anymore. And I, I think that was it, whether or not that was Naomi Osaka's intention, I have no idea, but, um, I think that there was maybe a little moment of panic for a lot of those media types realizing, oh crap, like what happens if, the, you know, if, if this catches fire and no one, none of these athletes in this situation, like, do we even go, do we even bother to show up? You know, like, do we just do, you know, remote zoom off her, you know, off her, her, her social media, her Instagram profile, looking for bits of, of quotes and clips to pull, like it's gotta be scary. So I don't know what the solution is, man, but I'll, I'll tell you what, I think uh, it, this rightly got a lot of attention from a lot of different sides. Yeah, I mean, she has sort of led the charge in many ways when it comes to other social issues and discussions. Uh, and here she is now leading a discussion as it pertains to mental health, which is, which is something that is becoming more and more prevalent across professional sports. Uh, that said, though, Billy, every tennis player prior to her has participated as they are expected to in these post-match press conferences. And even other players, former and current players, uh, many of them have taken the side of, hey, look, we are sensitive to Naomi Osaka and her situation, but it's just something that comes with the job. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I think, um, and look, I think obviously Naomi Osaka raised some serious concerns. Um, you know, one of the things about it, though, is it came really kind of right before the French Open and right before this stuff was going to happen. And I think there's no question that athletes, that media, that sports leagues, they all need to, we all need to kind of come together to kind of try to figure this out in a way that's best that allows the media to do its job and the athletes to maybe feel better about the, the you know, the press conference situation or whatever. I think that there's a, there's a, a, a discussion to be had there. Um, as for this particular instance, look, I, th I think that, you know, when you heard, I heard Serena talk about, it, I think there was someone else I heard mention that, look, it's kind of part of the thing, you know, that this is kind of in the rules. This is what you need to show up and do. And look, I would have had, you know, if she didn't want to do it, if she came out and said, Hey, this is what I'm experiencing and I don't want to do it. You know, I think you just take the fine and move on where it got all crazy is when they kind of just all of a sudden got so, you know, the, the grand slam tournament or the organization whatever when they came out and basically said you know banning you from playing in grand slam tournaments and and the the initial reaction that they had really wasn't helpful in any way shape or form um you know i think if she just kind of said hey i don't want to do that and, I, and i'll pay the fine and move on i think then you would have at least gotten through this tournament and then everyone could get together to kind of try to figure this out but i think there's no question that you know my my <laughs> this is going to sound like the elitist uh uh, print. Well, I don't know how you can be an elitist print journalism guy these days, but just, <laughs> I just, I just always hated the fact that so many people were allowed into it. I mean, there's a level of professionalism you got to have. And when, you know, joeschmo.com blog gets to be answered questions. I don't know if you've ever watched the NBA finals press conferences on NBA TV. Some of the people they have asking questions of those things are completely ridiculous. And a lot of times those are the questions that kind of screw everything up for a lot of professional people that are trying to do their job. So I think there's no question that we're at kind of a reckoning point where we all need to kind of come together and figure this out. But 
in terms of this specific situation, ultimately, you know, that's part of your job as a professional tennis player. And, and I would have had no problem if she just said, this is how I'm feeling. I don't want to do it right now. I'll take the fine and move on. And I think she, she, I think she had plenty of money in order to take care of those fines. The guy in his parents' basement questioning the, uh, the media credentials of some of the present uh, media members there for some of those press conferences. That's hilarious. It's just a funny it's image. Just completely <laughs> revenant. Yeah, thanks a lot. By the way, I'm just visiting for two weeks. Can we get that out there? I'm just visiting, okay? All right. Hey, guys, it's been fun. Are you guys ready to get into the post game? Yeah. yeah. He's got meatloaf waiting for him. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, um, my dad brought meatloaf down. We actually had leftover meatloaf, and he brought it down. Oh, my oh God. that couldn't have worked out better. That's kind of the world I've been living in the last two weeks, fellas. <laughs> what a life. What a life. Really. I got to be honest. That actually sounds pretty fantastic. Your dad's bringing <laughs> you down meatloaf while you're guest on a podcast. Like, that's yeah. uh, life's treating you all right right now, my man. All right, well, let's get into our best and worst. Brought to you by Waste Pro Hawaii, Maui's premier full-service refuse company, offering various sizes of dumpsters and roll-off containers for commercial construction and residential use. Family-owned and operated with over 40 years of service to the Maui community, Waste Pro Hawaii is committed to customer service and responsible waste management. Visit wasteprohawaii.com for services information. All right, so uh, we're a little bit short on time. We're going to have to do this a little bit differently. I'm going to ask each of you guys to give your best and your worst and then we'll open it up for any comments if anybody wants to uh, push further on the topic. So I'll go first with my best, my worst, my best. Hawaii's Jocelyn Alo, a Campbell alum, named USA Softball Collegiate Player of the Year the other day. Uh, at the time of the announcement, she had logged 30 home runs, 82 runs batted in, hitting 487 this year for number one Oklahoma. Uh, the bad side of that is they just got started in the College World Series in softball, and Oklahoma got upset by James Madison making their first appearance in the College World Series. So uh, not a great start there for the Sooners, but how unbelievable is that season and that stat line for Jocelyn Alo? I mean, quite simply, one of the greatest ever in college softball. On the other side, my worst, Ron Miyashiro. Ron Miyashiro got let go by the University of Hawaii. He was the UH men's golf head coach for 24 years, took over the program at the age of 23. I go pretty far back with Ron. Uh, I know the guy, respect the guy. He's a good, good dude. 20 years is a great run for Mike Trapasso. 24 years is an excellent run. Uh, but just wanted to give some love to Ron Miyashiro. Hated to see that happen to the guy because uh, he's a good dude. All right, uh, Jordan, you want to be uh, next year, your best and your worst? Yeah, I'll go. I'll go. Uh, my best, uh, one of my uh, true treats of the year is I get to serve on the selection committee for the Hawaii High School Athletic Association Hall of Honor. Uh, we just had our selection meeting this past Sunday, inducted a new class of 12. Uh, I won't go through every name, but uh, one of the highlights, it's a scholarship program as well, which is always really cool. Gives 12 high school recent graduates um, an opportunity to help pay for college or, or some future endeavors as well as sort of inducted basically into like the, the high school hall of fame here at the Hawaii level, uh, but did want to single out uh, Kayla Kabanban of Sacred Hearts Academy. She's the first really uh, primarily competitive cheerleader to make the hall. Uh, three state titles, four ILH titles, no state championship this year. Uh, arguably the most decorated competitive cheer athlete uh, in Hawaii high school history. So uh, shout out to her and the rest of the class. Uh, you can check it out online if you'd like. And then my worst, uh, Tito Ortiz, former UFC fighter and uh, just uh, all around interesting guy. Um, he resigns just six months into his term on the Huntington Beach City Council. Couldn't quite cut it. I'd say Tito sort of maybe aligns ironically a little bit more with the stick to sports, shut up and dribble crowd. Uh, so I don't know if he's kind of taking that advice or, or what, but uh, Tito out in Huntington Beach. Yeah, he also cited fake news as one of the reasons for his ah, ulster, Billy. What do yeah. you think of that? I saw Tito Ortiz at the uh, Kamaru Usman-Colby Covington fight, and I'm pretty sure those are legit tears when his boy Colby Covington lost, and boy, was I happy. Oh, I enjoyed it. <laughs> well, while you have the floor or the basement mattress, however you want to refer to it, you want to do your best and worst. It's an actual bed, Kanoa, all right? It's not just a little mattress on the ground, all right? And it's got pillows. It's got a sheet. It's got a comforter. I'm living the good life, all right? Um, With a full plate no. of meatloaf. Exactly, and a little bit of whiskey, if you know what I mean. Uh <laughs> My best. I, I actually have to admit, um, I was really encouraged to see um, Devon Bess. I, I kind of had forgotten about him. You know, I remember he was in the pros and then 
you know, he kind of had a little bit of some issues, I think some mental issues, some depression, and I just kind of forgot about him. And, you know, I know he was in the islands recently, obviously it's a sad time with what happened uh, with Cole Brennan, but, um, you know, I read there was a column on him in the newspaper that he was talking about how he's really kind of come back and he's gotten involved with his foundation again. And he's really helping people with mental issues. He looked really good. I saw some video of him as well. And just really good to kind of see him back and, and in the community and kind of making an appearance and, and looking like he was doing pretty well. So I thought that was really cool to see. And then my worst, hey, New York, <laughs> let me tell you something, Knicks fans. All right. You're going to come out in game two. You're going to win game two against the Atlanta Hawks in the first round of the playoffs. I know you it's your first time in the playoffs for eight years, but you go and you're spitting on Trey Young. You're celebrating like you won the NBA championship. You're closing down the streets outside Madison Square Garden. And then in true Nick fashion, you lose the next three games and you let Trey Young walk all over you game five in your building. Get out of here, Knicks fans. You guys are ridiculous. See you next year. Looking forward to another first-round uh, playoff outing, if you can even get there. Julius Randle. Yeah, Julius Randle. He was real good in the playoffs. New York. Can't stand New York. The Knicks. Wow. That was strong. Billy came strong on that one. Yeah, Trey Young, who did the Broadway bow at the end of that series performance, and it was probably uh, pretty fitting, for sure, the way he played. Yeah, yeah. Don't spit on the guy and then let him close you out a week later in your own building. Knicks fans, what a joke. <laughs> By the way, we had Devon Bess on our podcast last week, Billy. How'd you like that interview? Oh, yeah, it was um yeah, it was great. It was really I just he sounded so great and you know, he just the 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 questions he was asked were amazing, thoughtful answers. It was it was a great pod. I encourage everyone, please download the podcast if you missed it. One of the best ones you guys have done. But specifically, what was your favorite part? Like what was what was the question or the answer? Like what was it? Um uh, <laughs> you know, I oh, I got nothing, man. I got nothing. <laughs> I just, you know, look, you know, his foundation, you know, he was talking about his foundation and the stuff he was trying to do. You know, enjoying the beach a little bit in Hawaii, the warm weather, his family, you know, just 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 doing a great he was just doing great. It was it was a great interview. You did listen to it. Fantastic, Billy. <laughs> that was the that, that was the affirmation we needed. All right, B Mac, the red jinx. Uh, you can uh, take us out here with your best and worst. I I don't know if I'm gonna be able to muster the level of vitriol that Billy had for the New York <laughs> Knicks and just the, the city of New York as a whole, but uh, I'll start with my best. Uh, my best was something that happened right before we hopped on this pod, and it's already been alluded to on this show. The, New, uh, the Los Angeles Lakers going down in six to the unheralded Phoenix Suns, capped off with Devin Booker's 47-point performance and a probably unnecessary dunk that uh, caused some uh, ill will there in the final moments and, like, five combined technical fouls. Uh, tip of the cap, man, the Looking forward to seeing what that young team can do. But all right, my worst, uh, I hope I can bring the WTF theme for this pod full circle because you guys have made, I think Ian probably touched upon it on your previous pod, the Pirates rookie first baseman, Will Craig, for my Pittsburgh Pirates, you oh. know, the team, the team that I have pulled for uh, since my father's passing uh, the last four, four years, um, probably made one of the dumbest, worst sporting event plays in any sport that you have. I'm sure most of the listeners of this pod have seen it in one way, shape, or form. Javi Baez uh, going up the first baseline. Uh, the throw takes Will Craig, the rookie, in front of the bag. Instead of just taking one step back and tapping the first base with two out, by the way, that would have just ended the inning, Will Craig kind of makes a half-assed effort to chase Javi Baez back towards home plate and um, screws up the throw to the exchange to home plate. And then Javi Baez ends up being safe. It's a disaster and probably the worst sporting event for a team that you'll uh, – a sporting moment for a team that you'll ever see uh, as a singular play. So WTF. Yeah, I got to be honest, uh, no offense to the Pirates, but, yeah, that was maybe the one of the worst individual moments or individual decisions or individual plays that I've ever seen. Uh, Kyle Kuzma tried to beat it, though. Kyle Kuzma tried to beat it a few times. <laughs> here in this last uh, game for the Lakers. But, uh, yeah, B-Mac, that was tough. Jordan, we talked about it last week. Billy, did you see that thing? Oh, oh we'll, no. send, we'll send it to you. We'll say it's, it's wild. No, but Absolutely Billy, specifically, wild. what was your favorite part about <laughs> that play? Uh, no, I, I love the part where he, like, had to run all the way to the plate, and then, like, they didn't get him, and, and the guy made it to first. 
Well, that's All really right. actually pretty much describes the whole play. Maybe ask Pops to run some uh, cable TV down into the basement. All right? I've only been watching, seriously, local uh, NBA playoffs and the Mariners. That's literally it. I almost <laughs> made the Mariners my worst. My goodness. All right. Well, can we get one more Ma Meatloaf from you? Ma, the Meatloaf! <laughs> Shit, it's like 1130 here. Fuck. <laughs> Perfect. All right. That's our best and worst. A lot of worst in there brought to you by Waves Pro Hawaii. Maui owned, Maui operated for Maui's people. Uh, hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helley, at TalkSports808. You should also follow Billy Hull, follow Brian McInnes. Good follows on Twitter. Guys, thank you. We got to do it again. WTF. <laughs> <laughs>